manifest. And we certainly see it where uh, a charismatic prime minister can have a lot of sway. And, and so there's no real check and balance. And that is something that really concerns me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature, and I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have Charles Fickner, who is a retired public servant, but one who's very much interested in public affairs. And so we continue our conversation. Charles, thanks so much for staying with us. Thank you for having me. Charles, last time we talked a little bit about the history of how uh, government has evolved, how the nature of leadership in government, they were seen as trustees uh, that were not to be interested in their own affairs, but in the affairs of, of the populace, of the polis, in the fact of a city or of a country, of a nation, and that there was this uh, notion of an idea that law or the use was uh, something beyond the state, beyond the king, beyond all of his uh, administrators, and that he was to uh, ensure that any leges or any administrative law was going to be in line with the greater law, the natural law, or God's law, as it uh, was understood. Now, just as we closed off on the last program, we were talking about the situation here in Canada now, as we have seen a country that has evolved more, unlike a lot of the other British Commonwealth, a country where political parties are having more say than not, and that the leaders are having to pay attention to the parties. Now, I would just like to make an observation here, that as I look at uh, as we've already discussed, the idea that in the Canadian Constitution, which, by the way, uh, has a number of documents, is not like a single document like what we have in the United States, but we don't have any mention of political parties, yet they have a huge influence in how governments are run in this country, nor do we have mention of the first minister or the prime minister. And yet the prime minister, I think, in many ways, acts as like a um, has adopted uh, powers that would normally be understood to be those powers of the sovereign. And even though we elect them every four to five years, nevertheless, there's absolute power here in, 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 a, in a way that we don't see in other countries. So I'm just wondering now, as you're looking at what the effect of this uh, development in Canadian experience with public institutions and and how this is being played out in this country. It's interesting the way you phrase that. And, and if we can go back to what we talked about at the beginning of the last session, which was the, the, the decline in confidence in, in, in the parliamentary institution in the House of Commons, it's what, mm -hmm. when, when the, if, if in the the big theory of the history of of British parliamentary government system, we have the government which has these powers legitimately there for the purpose of upholding those principles of fundamental justice and administering the state in a reasonable way, um, 
But that is constrained by the people's representatives who can say, no, no, you can't do it that way because it would violate the rights of some of the people. Uh, you then have a second uh, mm. constraint on that, which is the Senate, which has a, it has a job to say, historically, as the notion of the better educated, the, 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 the richer, the wealthier, therefore, the, the, the more the more privileged in society, they have this custodial right to look after the mm. protection of all of the members of society. So we have a Senate which has a check and balance on what the government may want to do. And then we have a third check on the government, which is uh, the crown. So, so government can't decide to do something without the approval of the House of Commons, without the approval of the Senate, and without the approval of, of the crown. And each one of those is to be independent. Mm -hmm. And of course, all of that can be judged by the courts, which operate theoretically independently, driven entirely by this, these principles of fundamental justice in, in theory. So, right. so let's look what's happened now to, the, to these, the independence of these groups. Instead of having the government separate from the House of Commons, what we now have is the government controlling the House of Commons. So that if you get a, a vote on uh, on mm. something happening, uh, the party whip comes along and, and says, you will vote this way. Uh, and, and they do. Uh, they can't get elected to the House of Commons unless they have the party backing. It's just the way our system now practically works. It's not theoretically it's not like that, but practically it works that way. So and, and of course, you get your pension only after you're there for a period of time and you get the right to run again only if the party lets you. So you're going to do what the party tells you to do. I'll, I'll use an illustration of, of mm -hmm. so, so, so that piece is gone. But let me use an illustration of this. Prior to the implementation of the Emergencies Act, I think it was two days before, uh, there was a Quebec liberal MP, Joel Lightbound. Yeah, who, Joel who asked, Lightbound. Who, Absolutely. So Joel um, made a pre had a press conference at which he read a prepared statement in French mm -hmm. and then in English. Uh, and so this was not an off the cuff uh, abstract set of comments. And it was a very considered uh, set of comments right. expressing concern about the convoy having uh, upset people's lives and disrupted lives in Ottawa, but also expressing deep concern about the lack of dialogue between government and the members, the, the, the people who had come in the convoy. And Lightbound, mm -hmm. uh, in, in part of his statement, said uh, very bluntly that I, I really do not agree with our, what our party did at the last election. Prior to the last election, we decided that mm -hmm. we would use our strategy for dealing with COVID uh, masking, uh, ma vaccination, et cetera, enforcement, enforcement of those. We, we decided we would use that strategy, and these are his words, to wedge, divide, and stigmatize those who don't agree with us. Mm. Uh, so so here, is, here is a member, a representative of the public, who, who is expressing, a, feels strongly about, an, a member of the House of Commons, of the Liberal Party, who feels strongly enough about this that he goes out and he effectively criticizes his government and his party for having taken the approach that it has. Then the government decides right. that it's going to impose the Emergencies Act. And, and Joel Lightbound is whipped and he votes to support the Emergencies Act. Now, he wasn't the only liberal who, who made a, a, an expression like right. that prior to the implementation, but, but he was the, the clearest and the most articulate. 
in, in, in doing so. So so there is a representative of the people, one of the persons who has a job of controlling what the government does, who is is not able to do that because of the way in which political parties have um, morphed, changed, disrupted, effectively destroyed the, the, the proper functioning of the House of Commons as a constraint on the ability of the government to to exercise its will over over others. Mm. Um, so so that institution has been lost. The Senate, uh, because of the way senators are appointed, is largely lost as well because the prime minister is the person who appoints the Senate. So you have a, a, a second body that is chosen again by a, a partisan who has no constitutional role. Uh, and, and so depending on the, on the time and the, the way things are done, you, you, you may have a, a residual Senate, which uh, says, no, no, I'm, ho- I'm holding the view of the people or of the previous party. Or you may have a, a Senate entirely dominated by the current party. Now, rather interestingly, uh, Stephen Harper, when he left, he had the idea we should have an elected Senate rather than an appointed Senate. One can agree or disagree with that approach, but the consequence is mm-hmm. he left, I think, 20 Senate seats empty. And of course, when he left and, and Trudeau came in, immediately the Liberals appoint. They, they say they're nonpartisan. So, so, so immediately you get the Senate as, as another backup arm, which is less likely to do the job that it's theoretically there to do to act as, as a trustee for the people. And governors general... Uh, mm. after the King Bing crisis, uh, effectively just rubber stamped. So we've, we have lost, we have effectively mm. lost the control over the government of the day in the House of Commons. We've effectively lost it in the Senate and we've ele- effectively lost it in, in the, uh, the governor general. Uh, so right. what that has allowed is that the, the government of the day can in effect with a majority or with a, a, a collaborating other party in a minority, um, it can impose its will, and the, the minority party. That if the, if you have a minority government with a supporting party, that gives that minority party a very interesting position because it can say to the government, uh, although we didn't win the election, uh, we now have immense power, and we insist you do this, you implement these policies, um, um, or we will not support you, and and so so. A, a party that received a very right. small but, percentage of the but, vote but, but that, can actually influence Go ahead. True, but the reality is, and, and here's where I come back to the concept of the prime minister being a uh, kind of a mini sovereign of sorts, is that the prime minister holds all the keys. He or she is he the one who appoints the various government bodies, all of the all of the ambassadors around the world, which are in in many cases are plum jobs. There are all of the various crown agencies. Uh, the members on the cabinet uh, are beholden to the prime minister, and and it strikes me that we have lost the check and balance, and especially. When we have a situation where a prime minister is almost, um, I, I, I use the term uh, not in a pejorative sense, but in a in a in a descriptive sense, in a sense, uh, and and the term is cult leader, and and I mean that in the sense that whatever he or she says, everyone is going to follow, and it's not that they 
don't want to follow necessarily. They are so enamored because oftentimes, as uh, we'll we'll say that the politician or the prime minister will have the royal jelly that everyone wants, that everyone is is like has charisma and all the rest. And we certainly see it where uh, a charismatic prime minister can have a lot of sway. And and so there's no real check and balance. And that is something that really concerns me. A, a prime minister um, gets to decide who can run uh, in, in, as candidates in election in, for their party. Um, and mm-hmm. if the if the right. if the member of the party doesn't agree, they don't get in. Or if someone with a strong view uh, doesn't agree with some of the, the directions that the prime minister wants to go, um, that person will never get nominated. So we'll never see that person getting in there. So the House of Commons is controlled. Um, the, the appointments to the Senate are controlled. The governor general's appointment is controlled. The appointments to the Supreme Court are, are controlled all by the prime minister. I mean, that is an immense amount of power. Right. And and uh, when Huge. when you've got power, uh, when you've got power, um, persons who want to abuse that power have the greater incentive to try to get into those positions. And it's not just the, a prime minister; mm-hmm. it's it's the the people who choose to back the prime minister, who they choose to run as the candidate to be the leader of the party. So so um, now it, it's the. There is no other country in that in the British Commonwealth or former British Commonwealth that has so much power centered in the in the hands of the prime minister or the premiers of the province, for that matter. I mean, the the, the powers that are concentrated Mm -hmm. there are immense and the checks and balances are almost entirely removed from the system. So so you get a prime minister who's elected with 35 percent of the of the popular vote. and, and maybe maybe fifteen percent of the actual potential voters, because the, the, many people don't vote, right. uh, who can then implement a right. massive amount of uh, of activity. Now, there's a, I'm going to digress from this a bit, and 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 look at how this gets done in in an even more sinister way. It used to be that you would have legislation that would say we're going to pass an act which does this. But what you now find is, is they say, well, but let's stack this in as well, and we'll put that in as well, and that in as well, and we'll put a clause here that says the government can uh, do, uh, the, under the statute, um, through order in council, rules can be prepared and imposed on these fields. So, so the parliament, the, the mm. provincial legislatures, will approve statutes, many of which have provisions that allow the real laws, the real implementation to be done by regulation afterwards. And the regulations, uh, there's almost no check and balance on those at all. And that's done by bureaucrats who are increasingly now under the control of of the government of the day. So, So government can say, I want this. They don't even have to go to parliament. They don't have to go to the House of Commons because the statute is written in a, in a, an enabling way that allows uh, the, the bureaucrats to, to prepare regulations, to take them to their minister. He takes them and gets them signed, whether with that knowledge or not, lack of knowledge of the details, by two or three other ministers. Then that is of the law. And that has never been discussed in, in mm. parliament or, or uh, by, by these 
people who should be the people's representatives, but are increasingly not, and, and are increasingly willing to pass right. legislation that allows all of these wild, wider uh, activities to be done without government, without any control by anyone other than the government of the day. Right. So I guess the thing is, you know, we're, we're talking about trust uh, in this system. Um, we've seen dramatic uh, decline in the levels of trust amongst Canadians. Uh, and as we've talked about some of the issues that perhaps are behind this. Um, so how, what do we do? How what should Canadians be thinking about? Uh, what is it that, in your view, that we ought to be thinking about as we as we look towards the future of how we can keep this country together? When you have a government that that decides it will determine the policy and impose it, and it has the power to do it, um, what you increasingly see is that the governments that win are the governments that have an agenda of their own. And if you look at the, the decline in, in support for the House of Commons down to 38%, um, that's a pretty clear indication that, that people don't have confidence in, in the institution at all. So uh, I, I, I'm in answering your question, mm -hmm. it's, it's, there's no easy answer to this. But I, I will, I, I'll go back a, a few years ago in Ontario, there was a proposal to have a a, a, a change to the voting system so that we would actually have a proportional representation uh, mechanism. And it was going to be mixed member proportional system. So so you would you would vote both for the party and for uh, the, the representative. And it could turn out because of the formula, these get formulas get very complex and, uh, and very hard to really understand what will happen until you go into great detail. But what you would find is you could actually elect mm -hmm. your member of parliament and that member of parliament could be selected as your chosen representative. But that person may not even ever get into parliament because the uh, because the, the the party got too many votes. So therefore, if you right. chose all of the, the people who won from that party and put them in, they would have a, a, a disproportionate uh, number compared to the the, the party vote. Uh, and and so your member may not get in, but somebody who didn't get elected from another party could be appointed, and they never even face the people. So so what mm. you see is is a, 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 that in, in proposing that system, um, what was actually happening is that people were actually saying, let us not let let us move away from having in in theory representatives of the of the constituents. Let's have representatives of the parties that we are electing. And mm. rather interestingly, in New Zealand, which had implemented a, a, a mixed member proportional system, the chief electoral officer sometime before that was implemented, um, did a poll of all the members of parliament and asked them, whom do you represent? Do you represent your constituents or do you represent the party? And I don't remember the mm. precise numbers, but this is roughly right. Roughly 70% said we represent our constituents, that's our highest priority, and 30% said we represent the party as the highest priority. Once they implemented the mixed member proportional system, mm. uh, they did a poll again uh, of, of members of parliament, of the new members of parliament, and the numbers were reversed. 
Seventy uh, percent said our priority, our highest mm. priority, is to do what the party wants, uh, and uh, and only thirty percent said we want to do what citizens want. So people are looking for ways to correct the problem, but in many ways that that very heavily promoted system would in fact make the problem, in my view, considerably worse because it would entrench the role of the parties, which is totally contrary right. to the notion of representatives of members of the public. So what I what I think is we need a, a very serious discussion about what is the role of parliament? What are the origins of parliament? What are, what are the principles that created the parliament? Uh, and and has the parliament through conventions adopted by political parties like this funding and providing money to the uh, to the parties based on the number of votes but not to the independents uh, has something been done through these conventions imposed by the parties in the house of commons uh, upset our ability to live up to those fundamental principles of of the, the house of commons being a check on the uh, the power and the abuse of power by the government of the day I think we really need a serious dialogue on this. Uh, unfortunately, the dialogue tends to move far more in the direction of saying, let's have a proportional representation system. Let's vote for parties uh, in, a, in a formal way. Mm. And I think that just totally uh, backs away from that initial concept of the people having a, a representative for them rather than uh, someone under the thumb or the whip of a, of a party. Of party. I, right. I think we need a discussion of the I, fundamentals. I can't help but... Yeah, but in order to have a discussion, it strikes me that we need to have a people who are educated and understanding the purpose of government, the purpose of our institutions. I think for a country like ours, where we have a huge emphasis on um, people to come into this country. Immigration is extremely important. Uh, it always has been uh, in the history of Canada, and certainly uh, it will be uh, for the foreseeable future. But I wonder if we are doing a good enough job in helping the newcomers coming to this country to even understand the basic institutions of, uh, of Canada. And even those who are here have been here, gone through the educational system where there has not been that uh, study of history and of civics and, uh, you know, politics in and of itself to really understand why we have these institutions, what they mean, what they stand for, how they're supposed to function. And, and it strikes me that we are at a loss as a country when we do not have our people educated into just the very basics of understanding how our politics ought to work. It's, I agree with you. I, I would prefer not to use the word politics. I would prefer to use the word our institution. I focus on the institutions rather than the politics, because I think there's been a massive yep. focus on politics. Um, Fair enough. And I think it's, it's, it's a generational problem. It's, it's a multi-generational problem. I think mm -hmm. if you go into the high schools uh, and you get uh, a teacher of history who actually is, has a degree in history in high school, it's very likely that that mm -hmm. teacher has no understanding of those, those fundamental background uh, principles that, that, lay, that underpinned our system and systems before as, as they evolved through history. They're far more likely to have some understanding of, mm. of how the 
political system works and how politics work and how elections work. I'll, I'll give a little illustration. I, I, I told you I, I, I do some writing mm. and I, I pretend I write. And, and a, a book that I uh, pretended right. I wrote, the, the subtitle was Lost <laughs> Principles of Our Civil Which, but by the way, you, that, that's, uh, sorry, that, that's euphemism for saying you've written it, but you haven't published it. Is that not what you're well, saying? Well, I, I never tried to get it published. So, um, but it was a learning process for me. Uh, so ed, anyway, yeah. someone heard I'd written this and, and uh, he said he wanted a copy. And I said, no, no, no. And, and, uh, and he said, well, I'll give you $1,000 for it. This was 20 odd years ago. And I thought, well, that's a good bit of money. I will do it. So, so I, 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 I went to, uh, I, I didn't have a good printer in those days. Uh, and I was using WordPerfect rather than Microsoft Word. So it wasn't, I couldn't see what it looked like in the printed form. So I actually went to Carleton University uh, to one of their yeah. computer labs where they had computers and printers. And, and uh, it happened to mm. be in the political science department. And, and so I, I reformatted it, got it that it was looking somewhat reasonable and ready to send to this guy for that the princely sum. And, and uh, before printing, there were a few other people in the room and, and the printer was a bit slow. So I'm printing over 500 pages. So I said, is anyone got anything they need to print soon? They're almost ready. I'll hold off because I've got a 500 plus page document. And uh, <laughs> two, of the, two of the students came over, one of them a PhD candidate and one a master's candidate. And they said, what is it? And, and my comment was, it's, it's a look at what we have agreed to agree upon in history, what the, the various philosophers and political the, uh, theoreticians have, have mm. agreed from time of, of Plato, Aristotle and before up until today. So I'm not interested in looking at what they disagree, disagreed on. I'm looking at the common basis that, uh, of what it takes to have a civil and civilized society and what the institutions should do. And their response was absolute rubbish. Mm. There is no such thing. And so I asked a few questions of them. Wow. These are political science students. And, and so, uh, uh, so mm -hmm. one, uh, I'll use one illustration. I, I said, uh, well, look, I, I chose two um, political philosophers uh, who are viewed as being at odds with each other. Hobbes, uh, who wrote Leviathan, and um, uh, Locke, who wrote the second treatise on, on government, which is uh, effectively a, a rebuttal. And I said, okay, well, look, tell me what Hobbes says mm. in Leviathan. Boil it down. Give me a paragraph. Describe uh, the essence of, of Hobbes' Leviathan. And, and their answer was, duh, I mm. Mm, uh, <laughs> couldn't do it. And, and, so, and so they couldn't do the <laughs> They have no idea. They had no idea. So, yeah. so I, I, I asked several others of these who are seen as being political, uh, the, the, theoretical opposites in their position. Uh, which I would argue they're not. Mm. The core positions are very common. There are some detail on, details on which they diverge. And anyway, the, ultimately, they, uh, one of them gets a bit embarrassed. Well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to read uh, John Stuart Mill. <laughs> I'm going to read uh, another was I'm going to go home and read uh, Rousseau's uh, social contract. Uh, and so I said, look, uh, I mean, here you are. You've already got undergraduate degrees. You're working on your uh, postgraduate degrees. Um, you got a degree for something. These are the essentials uh, of, of the theory mm. uh, of, of your discipline. How, what did you get a degree for if, mm. you, if you don't know these essentials? And, and the answer was absolutely shocking. Right. They said, we know how to do polling. Mm. I said, pardon? Yes, we can do political polling. <laughs> So, so the, the, yeah. the, now that's obviously. So, so, so a, the issue of politics has overtaken the, yeah. 
the principles of discipline. So, so sorry, uh, from the politics as right, right, okay, yeah. So, so because politics I, I, so is where it, the power is. Politics is where the jobs are. Politics is where control is. And and they are being trained to fit into that pol politics system with no understanding of of the theory yeah. behind. I, I, one, I'll use another illustration. Right. There was a. I won't go into detail on it, but it was a, a lecture at Ottawa U at the law faculty, and and um, a position was presented by a presenter who had been asked to make that make the case, and and I spoke. Mm. I knew the professor who was uh, was actually running the was behind the sponsoring this, and I said, but what was said there is not true. It's just fundamentally wrong, and and it, it is totally inconsistent with our constitution and the way things are. And I said, "How can you not correct mm. this? Why you're here in the, a professor of law?" And and the answer shocked me. He said, um, uh, "That's not what the students want to hear." And to <laughs> me, uh, <laughs> when we have this incredibly rich heritage of of government and law and legal theory and and governance theory which gives the people the right to be protected from abuse of power by governments or people who want to take those positions. And it's not the, the institutions that are there to teach it, ignore it. They, they don't cover it at all. Then we've got a real problem because it's the universities that are teaching the practitioners. It's the universities that are teaching the high school teachers and it's the high school teachers that are teaching the students. And it has all shifted towards politics away from, from first principles. And mm. the understanding, history is taught as mm. dates and documents and so on. It's so rare that you see history being taught as a, as a competition between principles and, and a struggle for ideas and a struggle to, to, to ensure that those first principles are upheld. And, and if you look at history and law mm. from that perspective, you, you see that that is what made this country worth being in. So back to your question now. Mm. Uh, you started off talking about immigrants, uh, and then you shifted to talking about mm -hmm. Canadians. I think Canadians have a profoundly bad understanding of what the of the the massive power benefits importance of of the institutions that we that that we sit upon that that, that are that un, the mm -hmm. principles that underpin. And they're allowing them to be eroded and destroyed willy-nilly. Now, I, I will mm -hmm. make a bit of a, a political comment here. That, and and it's if you go back to uh, the 1960s, uh, Quebec separatist movement was active, and and there were undoubtedly provisions that were unfair to those who spoke French and and uh, Quebecers. Uh, and but government. Uh, then imp implemented or uh, created a bilingual and bicultural commission, and then a multicultural process took over. But what happened in this process is that we began to move in the direction of saying, well, you know, um, that's British. Uh, that's mm. the oppressor. They're the colonialists. They're the bad powers. And, and we began to, to view everything from that heritage as evil. And we never looked at the merits of what made the country worth being in in the first place. You couldn't talk right. about it. We, en right. we ended up having discussions saying, for example, that um, our law is actually a combination of, of British common law and the Napoleonic Code. And, and that mm. began to be accepted through our, through our society. We inherited the Napoleonic Code. 
Well, that is absolute rubbish historically. Um, mm. the, 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 in 1759, Wolfe defeated Montcalm of seven years' war between Britain and France. In right. 1763, uh, we had the Treaty of Paris, in which France ceded almost all of its North American territories to Britain. Right. Uh, Napoleon wasn't born for at least 15 years after that. So we could not have inherited the Napoleonic Code at the time when all of this land became uh, subject to Britain. Right. So these myths take place. And, and if you try to correct them, um, you are increasingly cast as, as the colonialist, the person who is raising things we should never raise. But history matters. And, and the mm. principles matter. At, at the His time when Britain took over from France, took over this area from France, they were under the Ancien Regime, one of the mm. most repressive government regimes ever mm. that, that existed in Europe uh, right. under those kings. We would yeah. not want to inherit that. But sadly, you might say that we have begun to move very much in that direction where the government becomes an authoritative figure uh, issuing commands. The history needs you know, to and talk. And I think, yeah, I'm, that is absolutely spot on. And, you know, to see this uh, looping around to a failure to appreciate the struggle that we've had within the British uh, understanding or experience, uh, which led, which you know there were all kinds of wars between the king and the and the commons and and all the rest of it the, you know with cromwell and so forth the civil war in britain but also even in the struggles that we've had uh in the modern age uh, when i say modern age i mean the the struggles since post reformation uh, over law and religion and all the rest of it and then we got into uh, the world wars all of these things matter where we have been constantly on this journey of seeking freedom of the individual, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, conscience, and so forth. And when we fail to appreciate and to see what our history has done for us, the freedoms that we have each and every day, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, and so forth, it's like, how is it that we could be so blind that we just don't see. Maybe it's because we just take everything for granted. But now we're seeing a much more sinister, I would suggest, uh, mindset where power is the ultimate goal. Instead of recognizing that uh, element of trusteeship that we would expect to be uh, part of the thinking of our leaders. And today it's all about how cynical the uh, power play can can be for the advancement of yet more power. And I think the failure for us is is going to be catastrophic if we're not careful. I think you're right. Now, when you were talking, you reminded me of, of comments that were made in the 13th century by John of Salisbury. And, and he was speaking of a cleric in France, a Bernard of Chartres. And uh, who had, was viewed as one of the most uh, enlightened, uh, thoughtful people of the age, and mm. and and he he made a, a, a he, he quoted Bernard of Chartres, uh, and uh, in in that Chartres was asked, um, Bernard of Chartres was asked, how do you know so much? How do you have this this insight, the, this this uh, view of things? 
And, and his response was, mm. if I have seen further than others, it is because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. Um, right. I looked back. I build it on everything behind. Now, rather interestingly, I, I quoted that to a friend of mine. He said, that was Newton. And interestingly enough, it was Newton as well. <laughs> so Newton built, <laughs> made the, almost exactly the same comment centuries later. So what you find okay. is these, these, this great progress comes from standing on the wisdom of the past, on the thinking, right. on the learning of the past. And what we have increasingly done is to demean the past, colonialist, mm. uh, uh, white supremacist. Um, these notions shut down discussion and stop a look at the great wisdom that lies behind our, our background. And if you, if you take that background back, you find it uh, all through Europe, you find it in ancient Rome, you find it in ancient Greece, mm. you find it in ancient Mesopotamia. So, so mm. these, this wisdom is something that should it evolved. It became more easy, better articulated um, through the centuries. Um, and now what we've done mm. is we've decided we can't have that anymore because that's old stuff. That's old colonial white supremacist uh, kind of ideas. And, right. and we will not talk about it. And, yeah. and so the, the ability to get back and look at the good things that made the West uh, um, as free as any place has ever been. Uh, we're not discussing mm -hmm. those. And instead what we're seeing is we're moving in into one of those times when kings become dominant, when the kings abuse the power. And, and we, we'll need to see, I would think, some shift away from this. And I think those numbers from uh, the public's opinion of the effectiveness of House of Commons are an indication that people see the problem they don't understand the footing on which to make the arguments to correct it. And, and right. so your, your point about uh, people need to be informed and educated is, is profoundly important. How they will become so informed and educated is a problem. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Charles, I, I know our time is already gone yet again. And I, I just, it just strikes me that we need to have more conversations like this. We need to, uh, I think by having people just even watching our program here on Freedom Feature, hearing guests like yourself, uh, talking about these important historical principles that have made our nation uh, so great as it is, having the freedoms that we have, it didn't just fall from the sky. There was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears uh, that gave us what we have. And this heritage is so extremely important. And when we hear politicians who are just constantly degrading our history, who are not appreciating it, but just going on the basis of politics, and I appreciate your, uh, your poignant statement about the importance of let's not get into the politics. Let's just pay attention to our institutions so that we, we can better understand how they ought to operate, I think is extremely important. And, and, and I just want to thank you for uh, being with us here again. Um, I do want to have a conversation about how we can even make this country better. And I think we're going to have to do it uh, another time. But thank you so much. Is there any final comment that you would like to, to leave with our viewers today? 
I I think we you and I are having this discussion, and I very much appreciate the opportunity to have it with you. Um, I think we need to have discussions with more persons. And mm. and while I've spent a lot of time reading history and looking at history and trying to make sense of things, um, there are a lot of people who have not done that, but who have a deep sense that something is profoundly wrong. And, and many of those persons right. need right. to be engaged in discussion. So um, a one-on-one -on -one discussion is good because it can reach some people. I think we need to find a way to have many, mm -hmm. many more discussions involving many more uh, thoughts, points of view. Um, and I would, I would, I, while I very much commend you for doing what you have been doing on, on all of your broadcasts, mm -hmm. um, I think we need to find a way to, to broaden the, the reach, broaden the coverage, because what is happening in our institutions of learning in my view, is actually going very fast in the wrong direction. It's stifling this kind of discussion. Mm. It's, it, it prevents meaningful, uh, thoughtful exchange. And it prevents, in many mm. ways, it, be, it, it imposes dogmas on young children, which prevent them from mm. asking questions that are that are clearly there in their minds that they want to ask. They see conflicts and contradictions, but they are so indoctrinated uh, in the, mm -hmm. the way of right think uh, that they dare not even ask those questions. And I think when you've got a country that says you cannot use your brain, um, you cannot use your God-given powers, your, your eyes, what you see, your, your reason, you cannot use them to ask questions because those questions are, are forbidden. I think we're headed in a very, very, very sad direction for the future of the country. We need to, to I don't think that's what people generally think. I think that's mm. who con those who control our institutions have begun to do. And I, I think we need mm. to find way to, ways to get ordinary people, thoughtful people with uh, kids and concerns for the future to be able to engaging meaningful discussion and to see a constructive way forward i thank you okay well thank you very much and thank you for sharing and uh, folks i want to thank you for for watching our program and listening to our podcast uh these are important discussions and this is why we exist as a foundation and I encourage you to go to firstfreedoms.ca and to sign up on our newsletter so that you can keep in touch and we can keep this conversation going. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Charles, and I thank you for being willing to share what you have been studying and thank you for your study. And folks, I know that you may not agree with the opinions that are expressed on this program, either by me or by my guests. But on this program, we want to have open, honest and transparent dialogue. And we look forward to seeing you again. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. First, freedoms dot ca